Hey everyone, welcome to the 51st episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Dr. John Finn. John is the best-selling author of The Habit Mechanic and founder of the award-winning Tougher Minds Consultancy. On today's episode, we discuss why knowing doesn't always lead to doing, the nine factors that shape your habits, and the one super habit everyone should practice. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, John, welcome to the pod. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So I came across your work and your information, how I do a lot of nights, which is I'm sitting on the couch and, you know, whatever, had a practice that day, it either went well or it didn't. And I'm trying to figure out why or why it didn't go well. And so I start Googling coaches, how do people learn and came across your book, The Habit Mechanic. And so then I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and the one hook that you said that reeled me in down this rabbit hole was you said, knowing doesn't always lead to doing. And so my kids know what to do and yet they don't always do that on the court. So can you explain why that's the case? Yeah, we don't do what we know we should do. We do what we're in the habit of doing. So the way to think about this is that brains run your players and your brain runs you as well and what we now know and this is pretty new insight is that most of what our brains are doing most of the time is mindless habitual processes so we're running on autopilot most of the time when i say most there's a window and that window is between 98 percent of what you're thinking and doing all the way through to 100 percent of what you're thinking and doing it's just an autopilot. Our brain's number one operating rule is to save energy because for most of our existence, energy has been a really scarce resource. So we've evolved to save energy and doing things on autopilot is the most energy efficient way to do things. So our brain habitualizes everything. And the way that we build habits is we it's what we practice. And unfortunately, it's easier than ever before to practice things that are really unhelpful in terms of how we think. So beating and worrying and beating yourself up, that's a habit. And the more you practice it, the better you get. So habits are not just physical things. It's how we think. It's all that invisible stuff that's going on inside our mind. And if you're not compelled by the idea of um, most of what we do most of the time is a habit, right now, I don't want you to think about a white elephant And already it's in your brain. You've not consciously thought about that. It's just there. So thanks to the fantastic work of people like Daniel Kahneman and uh, George Lakoff, we now understand this. So we've got to use these insights to make it easier for our athletes to do the things, for our tennis players to do the things that are going to be helpful for them. And what I see, so I've worked in these fields for over 20 years now. I've got three degrees in three psychology-related degrees. I was at, I was on the first wave of sports science really having a, a big impact in professional sport. I was there, I was working in elite sport at that time. And we can now see the seismic difference in the physical conditioning of athletes compared to 20 years ago because we started to use insights, cutting-edge insights about physiology and biology and nutrition, etc., to make it easier for us to condition our athletes so that they could actually be more efficient and effective and and push themselves further 
in the sporting arena on, on the tennis court. We're now at the point where we can start to use what I would call habit science to supercharge how we help our players to turn up every day, to give maximal efforts, but also, probably more importantly, to do it under pressure, to perform under pressure when the pressure is on so that they can actually bring their best game. We can we, we can use that science to help them to do that. And that's what I do every day. I help coaches to understand how to do that and, and to do it. You mentioned that it's easier than ever to have uh, negative or unproductive habits. Why, why is that the case? Because the world we live in is changing faster than ever before. So we live in what's called the VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. But now we're also, the VUCA world existed before the pandemic. Now we're in the post-pandemic world, which is like the VUCA world on steroids. The only constant is change. Everything in our lives is changing rapidly. Flexible work, working from home, the invasion of um, technologies, phones, social media, always being on the go. If, if we go backwards in time, when we worked in factories, for example, we did nine to five shifts. You learned the core parts of your role when you were maybe even a teenager into your early 20s. You turned up for your, for your work every day. You did the same thing that you'd learned um, for the rest of your career. You left work, no emails coming home, nothing to bother you. There wasn't much to do after 11 o'clock at night. There was no TV. You had to go to bed. You had to get a good night's sleep. So even these fundamentals of eating well, sleeping properly, exercising properly have been hugely challenged for most people. And we live in a world where it's easier to compare our lives to other people's lives through social media. So we see other people presenting their lives in a way that makes us feel bad about ourselves. So yeah, it's really fundamental. It's because the only constant is change. The changes are getting faster and faster and faster. And our brains are just not designed to deal with that volume of, of change. So therefore, they're not working very well. So what what is the step then? So if we live in this VUCA world and it's easier than ever to beat ourselves up or to have stress or the uncertainty... What are the steps that, if we're keeping this to tennis, what are the steps that you take to remove or reduce those negative habits and start building positive ones? Yeah, so the first step is we've got to use that consciousness, that limited consciousness which lives in our prefrontal cortex. We've got to use that more regularly to do what we call intelligent self-watching. And in the Habit Mechanic book, for example, and in our app, you will see that you can access what we call our habit metric tools. So tools that are designed to help you to analyze your habits so that you can get a better understanding of the things that you're doing habitually that are either helping you be at your best or getting in the way of you being at your best. So that's the first step. Then what we need to do is we can target one small and helpful habit at a time and we can start to learn how to build better habits in that area. So you might be performing under pressure, for example, might be an unhelpful habit that you want to work on. So you're going to want to learn some more knowledge and some more skills about what you could do differently to get better at performing under pressure. And then you can use 
what we call our nine action factor model, the nine factors that are driving everything that we're doing every day, we can use those insights to create what we call habit building plans. This is all in the Habit Mechanic book. So that's the process. It's kind of a simple three-step process in, in one way. Step one, intelligent self-watching. Come out of our habit brain and use our prefrontal cortex to intelligently watch ourselves. Step two is we create an aim. We target one area that we want to improve. And then step three, we create um, a behaviorally science-backed habit-building plan to help us to make actual positive change. And we keep going around that cycle. And we've got about... 30 i think there's about 36 tools that are in the habit mechanic book but we also teach coaches that they're all designed around that idea so more intelligent self-watching more intelligent planning one of the videos i i watched that you were in you kind of went through those nine factors you just mentioned and i believe your analogy was kind of driving is it possible for you to just kind of briefly touch on that analogy and how those nine factors shape your habits and and then your performance yeah so typically if you want your player to do something different you rely on verbal persuasion you say look i've been noticing what you're doing and i think this would be a better way to do it and the player might agree that that might be completely wholeheartedly it might be less wholeheartedly but they, they acknowledge and they agree and then you see them go back into the old way of doing things. So we might know what we need to do. We don't do it. So that's because we're we're relying on people knowing and agreeing, and therefore they will action things. It's not how it works. We run on habits. And we know we've created our own behavioral science model because we couldn't find another model that we thought really worked that explains the nine drivers of our behavior, the nine elements that really drive what we do. So, yeah, the way that we often explain this in the first instance is, is through a driving example, because driving is a is a complex behavior. So it's a set of habits that we learn. You know, if, if you want to get your players to eat more donuts and to practice with less intensity and to um, get less sleep and develop better habits for beating themselves up more often, you don't have to worry about the nine action factor model because they're already working and making it really easy for them to do those things. So everything that your players are good at, the nine action factors are driving those behaviors. It's just that they're largely invisible to us. For complex behaviors, like getting better at performing under pressure, like turning up every day and being really focused and putting in really high quality, deliberate practice, then we've got to get the nine action factors very deliberately working for us. So let me go over the nine factors and you can maybe ask some questions if you want Jonathan as I go through so the first factor that we need to consider is what we call the mindset factor so if you want to learn how to drive you're not going to be able to do that if you don't believe that you can learn and change and get better and that's why we start by teaching everyone how their brain works so they can actually learn They actually understand that their brain is malleable. It changes. It's made up of about 100 billion neurons. Those neurons are like plasticine. They're changing all the time. So if you don't believe you can learn to drive, you're not going to be able to do it. Equally, if you don't believe you can learn to get better at performing under pressure, you're not going to be able to do it. So mindset is the first thing. The second thing is what we call the tiny factor. So when we learn to drive, 
we accept that it's going to take us three, four months. We're going to have to have 35 lessons or whatever it is. And that after the first lesson, we probably can't even drive anywhere. We just we just learned where things are in the vehicle. So we can make change, but it's only one tiny little change at a time. Because every time you make a change, you've got to grow new neurobiological connections. Yet when it comes to other changes in our lives, like helping someone to get better at, at serving under pressure, if, if we can't do it after the first few attempts, we create a narrative that I'll never be able to do it and that we're useless. You know, maybe a more tangible example is if, if you're trying to lose weight and after the first week you haven't lost any weight, the, the scale's not moving in the right direction, you say, I'll never be able to do it, etc. So we can make change, but it's only one tiny change at a time. So we have to factor that into how we help people to, to build new long-lasting habits. The next factor is what we call the personal motivation factor. So if I want to learn how to drive, if I've learned how to drive, there was a bigger, there was a bigger, more meaningful reason why. I had to get the kids to school. I had to be able to get to the training facility. I wanted to be the first person in my peer group to do it. So if we can connect the small change that I want to make today, like getting better at serving under pressure with a with a longer term big meaningful goal it's going to be easier to keep persisting and working on that difficult new habit closely connected to that is what we call community knowledge and skills so if i want to learn how to drive it's really helpful if my parents know how to do it for example because they could take me for a free driving lesson at the weekend if i want to learn to be a great tennis player it's going to be helpful if people around me beyond my coach know how to do it because they can give me some advice and some tips the next factor is what we call social influence. So we are hugely influenced by important people in our lives and we model and copy their behaviour. So for example, if I want to learn to be a great driver, but my father doesn't think the speed limit is a valid idea, then that's not going to be a great role model for me. If my mother doesn't believe in car insurance, that's not going to be a great role model for me. So we've got to be really mindful of the the role models that are around us and what influence they're having on our behaviour. The next factor is what we call the reward and penalty factor. So we are driven constantly by often invisible reward and penalty systems. These can operate at the what we call intrinsic level, which is when I do this, it makes me feel better or feel worse the extrinsic level, which means when I do this, I get a tangible reward for it or, or, or not. And the social level, which means when I do this behavior, it makes me look better in front of the people that are important in my life. When we're driving, there are some clear reward and penalty systems at, at play. So if I drive well, eventually I'll get my license a reward. If I continue to drive well, I'll keep my license and my car insurance will go down. If I get my license and drive poorly, then my car insurance will go up. I will get speeding fines. I will get points on my license. So we've got to think about what are the reward and penalty systems that are driving the behaviors that we want to instill in the people that we're trying to help. The next factor is what we call external um, triggers. These can be physical, they can be digital. So when we're driving, Governments have, have worked out that most of our driving behaviour is automatic. It's a habit. And if they don't keep reminding us what to do, 
to drip in order to drive safely, then accident rates really go up. So as soon as you get in a modern car now, for example, if you don't put your seatbelt on, you get a ping, 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 a trigger to remind you to put it on. You have a speedometer reminding you how quickly you're driving. There is a line in the middle of the road literally reminding you which side to drive on. There are speed cameras. There are cop cars. There are crossing. There are there's signage everywhere, all designed to keep you driving safely. So we are surrounded in our lives by triggers. So we've got to be aware of that. and Often we've got to design new triggers to keep us, to help to make it easy for us to practice the things that are most helpful for us. And the final factor is what we call the brain state factor. If you try to learn, for example, when you're sleep deprived, it's not going to go very well. So we've got to make sure that our brain is working optimally when we're trying to learn new difficult things. Otherwise, building and sustaining new helpful habits is going to be a non-starter. So that's an overview, Jonathan. This was this was a uh, twenty plus years in the making, three degrees, including my PhD. But that's the framework that we use to make it easier for people to actually build new, helpful, sustainable habits. I've got two short follow up questions here. I believe it was number five. You said was community knowledge, and one thing I hear. Honestly, from my juniors and my adults, but you know, your your community is if you're a three five adult, you play with a lot of three five adults. And then those three five adults are giving you advice. And a lot of the times they'll say, Oh, my friend said this, and I'm like, that is in my mind, I'm like, that's horrendous advice. I would I would not recommend you ever listen to that human again. But is the if you can't hang around ATP tour players and all your best friends are not tennis coaches. Is is that number five? Would your best bet just be to we- be aware of who you're around and kind of just filter out that noise? Just basically don't listen to it? Yeah, so I think what you're talking about there is very much about the technical and the tactical advice on a tennis court. But remember, tennis players don't just live on the tennis court. We, f- we need to get their brain working well, first of all. Otherwise, spending any time on the tennis court is going to be unproductive. So what you might say to your players is, when it comes to technical and tactical advice, don't listen to people that um, are not experts. But they might have some great advice about managing stress or getting a great night's sleep or what you do successfully away from the court to you know, live a good lifestyle. In the, my, my PhD is in the transition from, I looked at the world's best soccer players and uh, cricket players and rugby players. And in fact, tennis was in my pitch, but I didn't end up using that data because I wanted to focus on team sports. Why, when you're um, when you're the best in the world as a junior, does it not always transfer to being the best in the world as a senior, essentially? And for me, my hypothesis was that it's the guys that are best at regulating their emotions. That's the key. And getting good at regulating your emotions is is a habitual idea as well. You can You can create what we call implicit emotional regulation. And that's what all this work is really about. It's helping people to habitualize better emotional regulation. But the point I'm speaking to here is that for those athletes that were successful, you know, their parents were a huge resource. And often they had no technical expertise in soccer or in cricket or, or in rugby, but they were just good emotional sounding boards. You know, maybe that could be, a that might just be what we want. And, and I think this is really challenging in sports like tennis and, and golf that I've worked in and in a lot of detail is that 
you know, exactly as you're saying, the, the more we know about the technique, the more vulnerable it is to pressure. Because what happens when the pressure comes on is that I can start to overthink about the technical movement. I don't need to know anything about the technical breakdown of a tennis serve in order to be able to do it. Because I can throw a ball up in the air and I can hit the ball. So and the less I know about the technical movement, the less susceptible my technique is is under pressure because I can't overthink all the mechanics of the technique if I don't know what they are in the first place. And this is what I've seen with the elite guys in sports like tennis, where you've got all this technical advice coming from all quarters. You know, you've got players that are on the top tours having these in-depth technical lessons from not just their coaches, but from other people. And often that is doing more damage than good because these players already know how to technically hit the thing. It's actually more about the thinking process when the pressure comes on. So yeah, you know, maybe you want to create a rule for the for your players that we need mum and dad to support emotionally, but leave the technical piece to me. Then I know exactly what is flowing into into my athlete and I can get more control over that. The eighth thing you said was an external trigger. So you're in the car, you hear the seatbelt noise that my dad somehow can ignore for 15 straight minutes, which is mind-boggling. But what would be an example of something on the tennis court? What would be an example of a trigger that might lead to a negative habit? Yeah. You know what? There's a really... (laughs) Could be anything that we can see in our periphery. But um, it's actually a really interesting live example at the moment. So there's um, a a match going on at the moment, a cricket match, and it's the world championship. between. It's between India. It's the final between India and Australia. And one of the senior Australia players has been kicking off because there's there's a camera and it's called the spider cam. So it kind of operates on a grid above the ground and it can zoom in anywhere. And he's been banning the spider cam from operating anywhere near him. And one of the commentary things I was listening to on the BBC was digging in, why is he so against this camera? And it's because he he dropped a really important catch about five years ago and he blamed this spider cam technology for distracting him when he dropped the catch. That's an external trigger that's getting into his, his mind, if you like. But, it, you know, it can be the motivational signs that are around. It can be you. It could be the parent watching. It, it can be anything. And they're, they're digital as well. So the phone's there. The phone's on and it's there and it's distracting me. So we're surrounded by triggers and reminders. You know, one insight there is that the triggers and the reminders, let's say you put some signage up in your court, in your facility, that's reinforcing the kind of core mindset messages that you want to, that you want your your athletes to to buy into and to get good at. Those signs disappear very quickly because they become like wallpaper. Our brain's interested in new, exciting information. So if we understand the nuances of these things, we can get better at harnessing and supercharging them. And I go into loads of detail about this in uh, chapter 18 in the book where I really dig into the different elements. This might be an unfair question because I'm kind of asking you to do my job, but what one example of something that I would maybe teach a player would be, you know, if you're on defense, you're outside of the doubles alley, you're in bad court position that you generally want to go cross court. 
You know, that's not 100% of the time, but it's almost. And I could explain the reasons why that would be the best tactic. And like you said, they might go, man, that sounds great. And yet, then when I watch them, they will slap balls down the line or try, try drop shots. So what would be, is there a simple basic process where I could say, how do we now rewire their habit? They are on board with my knowledge. They know the tactic they should try, and yet they have a very hard time implementing that. What would that process look like for that specific tactic? Yeah, so that is a really good target in terms of the behavior that you want them to um, to use. When the opponent is hitting the ball to them in that position, where would they be on the court? Would they be in a, in a similar place consistently on the court, or could they hit that shot from anywhere? Uh, no, it'd be like, let, let's say your opponent hit a shot and they ran you wide, so you're outside of the doubles alley. So you're very wide off the court. And I would kind of go, hey, we need to hit that ball high cross court for the most part. And they go, that makes sense. But then if I watch them play and they get in those situations, they often don't choose that shot. And so what would that process look like to get them to to use that optimal tactic? Yeah, so there's something about the physical location on the court as being a trigger. And then what we would use, for example, would be our, our T-tap model to make sure that the way that you were asking them to practice that shot in that situation was as game-like as possible because just drilling the shot again and again and again isn't what actually happens in the court. When they play that shot in a real game, it's part of the bigger jigsaw puzzle of, of how they're trying to score points against their opponent. So we have we, we've got to make that that practice as what we call functional equivalent as possible to the actual to what actually is going to happen in real time on the court. You know, and often when they're they're not making the right decision under pressure, which is frustrating for you because you've agreed the tactic and they've agreed the tactic, it's because they're tired and they're running on autopilot. So the PFC is gone. So they're going back to the habit. So if they're not doing it under pressure, it means it isn't habitualized. So we'd use the TTAP learning model and we'd start to create a routine around um, that particular behavior. Love that. We're going to finish with, we have three Instagram questions from some of my followers. They're very simple, but I'm very excited for them as well. One was from a coach. And he said, as a coach, obviously you don't know me, you don't know this person, but what is one of the best habits that you can have as a tennis coach? So we've got to remember that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of habits running what we're thinking and doing right now. But what I've learned is that some habits are more powerful than others. And you, I put those habits into two categories. One I call super habits, one I call destructive habits. So what we need to do is learn and develop more super habits and get rid of more destructive habits. So a super habit, if I develop that, activates loads of other helpful habits. So the first, the the, the core super habit I would say that you need as a coach or anyone who wants to get better is to every day check in with yourself and complete what I would call a daily tea plan. That's in chapter one of the book. And the daily tea plan is takes two minutes and you do it in three simple steps. Number one, you ask yourself the question, how well did I do my best to be my best today and to um, achieve my goals? 10 would mean you're perfect. One would mean you failed. You're probably somewhere in between. 
Number two is, you say, what's the one tiny, so T stands for tiny power in action. What's the one tiny power in action I can do today to give myself a better chance of being at my best? It could be, say, one more positive thing to a player that I'm not getting on with. It could be get to bed 10 minutes earlier. And then number three is, I say, why is doing that going to be helpful for me? And I explain why, because it's going to make it easier to do X, Y, and Z. So just having that that tiny process of reflecting, planning and reflecting each day, and you could add on to that an end of day three to one reflection, that's going to give you a better chance of being at your best. If you have a player, this player wanted to know basically the length of time to change a habit. So I have players and they have a habit of they lose their serve and they throw their racket or they scream or something definitely not a productive habit for sure and let's say they're all bought in and they go through your process or a process to improve that habit to something positive how long will that process take them yeah well it's it's not 21 days so that's just we see these um numbers out there that are just nonsense so every habit is unique to you so have you been practicing throwing your racket after a bad serve for a day, for a week, for a year, for 10 years? The longer you've been practicing it, the more wires there are in your brain for it. So every habit that you try to build is unique to you. And the only principle we can apply to this goes back to how brains work. Our brains cheer. When you're trying, when you're building a new habit, you're, you're growing new neurobiological connections in your brain you're growing new neurons and you're trying to prune old neurons get rid of the the neurons that are making you throw the racket on the ground in this case sometimes we can establish new behaviors very very quickly because we've got the right wires in our brain to do that sometimes it's going to take longer so the only rule that i can apply to changing our behavior building better habits is that we get good at what we practice because again you might get over the hump and you might get good at um, not throwing your racket and then slowly but surely it starts to creep back in again. So the good habit I've built all of a sudden goes back to where it was again. So we just got to keep applying that process of intelligent self-watching and intelligent planning and focus that on the behaviors, the habits that are going to serve us the best. And last question, this is a common one. Yours will probably be in line with your expertise, but they want to know what your best advice is for like the 4-0 amateur tennis player. If you could give them one thing to help them improve at the sport of tennis, what would it be? Read the Habit Mechanic book. (laughs) I like it. Really, because this is the manual for life. It's not just, it's not one of those books which has one idea repeated 10 times. It's a manual. And you use it in conjunction with the app. So you start with the the daily tea plan, but then you find other tools. So all our tools are broken down. They're either daily tools, weekly tools, monthly or bi-monthly, etc. So do more intelligent self-watching, do more intelligent planning, but you need frameworks to help you to do that. That's why we've got all our tools. So read the book, start with chapter one, start by creating your daily tea plan, then do the habit analysis and become a habit mechanic. And that will supercharge not only your your tennis but everything that you're doing in life because you'll develop more super habits and destroy more destructive habits 
So you've mentioned the book, but can you also, you have a website and, and an app. Can you kind of let listeners know where they can find you on, on those platforms? The Habit Mechanic is available in all good bookstores, including Amazon. It's an audio book as well. It's not something you read once. It's a manual. It's a guide. You can get the app on the Apple App Store and also the Google Play App Store. We're releasing all the new powerful features in the app in mid-July. The app and the book work together. And if you want to learn how to really do this in-depth for yourself and for your clients, we can train you to become a certified habit mechanic coach. All the things I got taught through my three degrees in sport performance psychology was, if we can get people to know what they need to do to be at their best, you've done your job. I learned that doesn't work. We need to move past people from knowing to doing to habit. And I've dedicated my entire life to learning how to help people to do that. I can't thank you enough for this hour. Like I said, I, I got I went down that rabbit hole a couple nights ago and, and have been reading about all your stuff and, and so much of it resonates. And like I said, just that concept of knowing doesn't lead to doing. And I just feel like, you know, when you're explaining these habits and how that's that missing piece, I see that with my players. I see how I can become a better coach if I can get a handle on that. So thank you so much for sharing your information and, and joining the show. It's been a pleasure. And if people have questions, feel free to reach out. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, but uh, just go to our website and, and drop us a, a line via the contact page. All right. I want to thank Dr. Finn for coming on the show. Much of what he spoke about today makes so much sense to me. And it's why I see players who know what to do, but don't do what they should do. And I thought about releasing this episode at the end of the year when everyone has New Year's resolutions and you want to start new positive habits. But then I thought, why wait? Let's just get going now. So start with adding his super habit of self-watching and then pay attention to the nine factors that shape your habits and start tailoring them to produce the behavior, the stroke, or the tactic that you want on the tennis court. You can really improve your tennis game if you get your brain working on autopilot in your favor. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.